The second reading is from John chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you also may be. And you know the way where to go, where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, I have been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or else, believe on account of the works themselves. The word of the Lord. We, uh, we love to laugh at bold and audacious statements. We love to laugh at embarrassing statements that people make. Um, you know, one of the favorite ones that we all have is a story uh, of saying the wrong thing at the wrong time, sort of the foot-in-the-mouth disease that almost always goes back to, everyone has one of these experiences of, oh, congratulations. So when are you due? I had one of those in the midst of praying for people at a church once. Um, when I used to give communion in this church when I was starting out, I would pray for kids as they came up and crossed their arms and also pray for moms who were pregnant. And then I prayed for a woman who I didn't fully recognize and halfway through the prayer, I recognized that I didn't know if I should be praying for her or not and the baby that was maybe or maybe not inside of her and I think I just started mumbling trailing off the prayer and then proceeded to sweat profusely and hope she would never come back to that church again. (laughs) There was a story that a woman told me about her three-year-old son. Now, I knew her three-year-old son, and he was the sort that would say anything anywhere very loudly. Well, there he was in the grocery uh, uh, shopping cart, sitting there, going through the checkout line, and pointed to somebody and said, he looks like a balloon that got pumped up too much. The mom was horrified. We, who heard the story, thought it was hilarious. We love bold and audacious claims. Sometimes we laugh at them because it's the ridiculous bold and audacious claim. There's a movie from the late 1990s, Napoleon Dynamite, and a character, Uncle Rico, who is one of these guys who uh, is reliving the past. He points at mountains 10 miles away. Now, Uncle Rico thinks he's going to make it into professional football, even though he was a second-string player in high school. He points to the mountains 10 miles away and says, how much you want to bet I can throw a football over them mountains? Ridiculous claims that some people make, make us laugh. But sometimes we're actually inspired, driven to love the sort of people that make bold and audacious claims. 
Larry Bird, the famous basketball player, was known to make bold and audacious claims. He was a famous trash talker. During a three-point shooting contest in the All-Star Weekend of 1986, Larry Bird entered the locker room. Silently, he looked around at everyone in the locker room. And then he said, I want all of you to know I am winning this thing. I'm just looking around to see who's going to finish second. And then he went out and won the three-point shooting contest. Another time, Larry Bird was at the end of a game. The teams were tied, the Celtics and the Seattle Supersonics. Larry Bird had been guarded by Xavier McDaniel the whole game. Xavier McDaniel, who was guarding him, Larry Bird said to him, with a couple seconds left on the clock and the, the timeout happening, he said, I'm going to get the ball right here. I'm going to shoot the ball in your face, and I'm going to bury the shot in your face. After a timeout, Larry Bird went back and forth across the baseline, proceeded to the very exact spot he told Xavier McDaniel he was going to, caught the ball, turned with Xavier McDaniel right in his face, shot the ball, made it, and it was the game-winning shot. After which Larry Bird exclaimed to Xavier McDaniel, I didn't mean to leave two seconds on the clock, and then walked away as they had won. We as Americans love to laugh at the absurd, at the embarrassing, at the stupid statements that people make, and we're often in love with the sort of people who make bold and audacious claims and then back them up. The one thing we don't like is offensive claims, claims that challenge us. Very few claims that have ever been made are more offensive or more challenging than the one that Jesus makes in our passage today. In John 14, 6, Jesus makes the sort of claim that we don't laugh at. And it's the very reason that many people can't buy into Jesus or Christianity. Jesus says this. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says, I am the way, meaning I am the means of salvation, the way to God the Father, the way to eternity. He says, I am the truth, meaning I am the fullest revelation of ultimate reality. I am the lens for interpreting all of life. Jesus says, I am the life, the source of life, the source of new and spiritual life now and of an eternal life to come. This is not only an unthinkable claim now, it's an unthinkable claim back then. There he is in the upper room with his disciples all around him, all of whom are Jewish. And Jesus is claiming to supersede the Jewish religious practices of 2,000 years. He's claiming to dismiss all of the moral law that they had tried so scrupulously to follow. He's putting himself on par with God, with Yahweh. This is unthinkable. He's saying, I am the object of faith. There is no other way to the Father except through me. Now, his Jewish listeners would have objected because Jesus is claiming to be the way. Today, we object to Christianity because Jesus is claiming to be the only way. Our culture, our ears have a hard time with this passage. No one can say Jesus is the only way, right? We can't go around telling folks they must believe in Christianity. 
Now, one of the things we need to do is back up and understand our own cultural perspective. Our culture has its own set of priorities and assumptions. And we need to at least acknowledge that and realize where we come from. The American narrative is built on individual liberty. It always has been. It's something we all enjoy. And the goal, the end, the aim of our culture really is, the highest priority is to protect and expand personal freedom. The only thing that's off limits is to infringe or restrict someone else's freedom. And this has led to something that is actually very good in our, our culture, but can also be a slippery slope towards an unthinking way of reacting. And that is tolerance. Tolerance is actually a great thing that we would respect other human beings, not oppress or marginalize on the basis of belief or action or choice, lifestyle. Tolerance has come to mean that you must res- not only respect people, but allow for every ideology or thought or choice or action, so long as it doesn't infringe on my freedoms or yours. And it's also led to the theory or the theology or the ideology of relativism, that no one truth can be the only truth. Okay, so enough of philosophy. Let's get this into story form. Many of you have heard the story of the blind men and the elephant that really explains the way our culture perceives things like this. And it goes like this. Three blind men were walking along, and they met a creature. The creature was an elephant. Each one of them went up to the elephant and touched a certain part of it. The first blind man, grabbing hold of the trunk, said, this creature is long and flexible like a hose or a snake. The second creature went up and grabbed hold of one of the legs and said, no, this creature is firm and round and solid like a tree trunk. And the third blind man came up to the creature and touched the whole side of the elephant and said, no, this, this creature is a vast expanse and a very solid, unmovable thing like, like a wall. And the, the way that we interpret it is the way we interpret the system of religions, that no one religion can have the right way. No one religion has the answer. That each of them is simply giving an interpretation on what they are feeling or experiencing, but it's all really the same elephant. Now, there's a basic fallacy in this theory that's actually behind our relativistic way of thinking. The only way that I can know that all three blind men are talking about the same creature is if I claim to be standing at a superior vantage point. I can see the whole elephant. They can't. I'm claiming to be able to see something they can't, that there is one truth that they're all pointing at. But how can I know that? Unless I'm putting forth the sort of exclusive claim that I don't have the grounds to stand on, that I can see everything, that my vantage point is right, and theirs is only partly right. Leslie Newbegin, an English missionary and theologian from the last century, He wrote about this very story and said, what is the vantage ground from which you can claim to be able to relativize all the absolute claims these different religions make? Putting it another way, it would be normal for me as an American today to say Christianity simply can't claim to be the only way. That's a relativist way of approaching Christianity. 
But this assumes first that I've actually figured it all out. That Christianity can't be the only way. And second, it's to dismiss any worldview that doesn't buy into my basic presumption that there can't be one way. And so I've just dismissed five of the six billion people in the world who believe that their way is the way. You see, relativism, when pushed to its extreme, has some holes in it. And at its basic fundamentals, there's the flaw, which is it's exclusive in and of itself. I would suggest that there's another way forward. One is to recognize that we all have religion. Now, we might not all call it religion, but everyone has a religion or a worldview. And that's essentially what a religion is. We tend to think of religions as those things that have buildings and ministers or some version of practices. But the reality is religion at its basics is something that we consider ultimate, that gives meaning and purpose to life. It's that narrative through which we interpret all of life that guides us. It's how we answer what is life about and where is it all going. That may or may not include a spiritual side, or a God that we follow and worship with others, it may just be our philosophy approach to life. But in and of itself, we are all fundamentally religious. We worship something, believe in something, adhere to some set of truths. So the question is not, is Christianity, is just basically, is Christianity right? It, first, to start off with, what is your religion? Now, in 2011, the United Kingdom did their census, and when they asked they found 14 million people said they had no religion at all in the United Kingdom. 176,000 people claimed to be of the religious tradition of Jedi. That was down from 330,000 in 2001. And a full 6,000 people in England just a couple years ago claimed that their religion was heavy metal. I think heavy metal music is what they meant, so they worshipped anthrax and Megadeth and Poison and various other more modern versions of the same. Basically, you could actually come up with any set of philosophies, and it really should be a religion. What is it that guides you? What is it that you say that I'm going to interpret life through? The second question I would say is, go ahead and evaluate Christianity as you evaluate your own religious claims. Evaluate it on the basis of ration and pragmatism. Does this make sense of my life? Does this make the most sense of the most of life? And evaluate it experientially, and yes, spiritually. Does this smell true? Does this ring true? And when we get to an absurd and challenging statement like Jesus makes in John 14, ask the question, who says it? Look, if I say my way, you should put up your hand and say maybe not. My kids love to blame me for always trying to get my way. The answer to that is they can have their way so long as they're right and it aligns with my way. If I say my way, that's one thing. But if Jesus says, I am the way, there's a different character and person who's making the claim. I would suggest to you that Jesus' claim is not fundamentally exclusive. 
It's fundamentally a proposal of love. It's Jesus saying, I love you. Will you marry me? What we get as we look at Jesus' claim is not primarily exclusion, but assurance and hope and grace. Look at the setting of John 14, 6. The the challenging statement is in the setting of Jesus providing assurance for his disciples. The setting is the Last Supper. He's been telling them, I am going to die tomorrow. I'm going to be handed over to my enemies who are going to make lies about me. They're going to beat me, mock me, spit upon me, and then they're going to crucify me. And on the third day, I'll rise again. And the disciples are getting nervous by this time. A few verses before this, Judas has gone out to betray Jesus. Peter has just said, Lord, wherever you go, I'm with you. And Jesus has predicted, you're going to deny me tonight. Before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me, Peter. Then Thomas and Philip in our passage get up and, and Thomas is worried. Lord, where you're going, show us the way. And Philip misunderstands Jesus altogether. Um, show us the Father, then we'll be comforted. The disciples are confused, unsure, scared. Jesus says this in John 14, 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. That's the start of what he's talking about. Don't worry. I am with you. You've got me. Believe and trust in me, he says. You see the setting here in John 14. It's not a debate. It's Jesus assuring his disciples. He's saying, I love you. I have provided for you. I will continue to provide for you. All you need is in me. And then he goes on, as he set it up as words of assurance, to give them hope, the ultimate hope that they could have been longing for. He gives them the hope of a home and a family. Now, we've talked about it here before, but in the first century, home and family were the ultimate desire and longing of every person. It was the highest aspirations of a first century Jew to be surrounded by your extended family in your own home, on your own land, within your wider community. This sense of belonging and of love and of acceptance and of assurance and protection and safety and care was all around you. It was almost a picture of heaven for them. And the opposite was also true. The greatest pain in that day and age was not having kids or being an orphan or a widow or being exiled from your land or your community. So when Jesus goes on to assure them by saying in verse 2 and 3, in my Father's house are many rooms and I go to prepare a place for you and I will come again that you may be where I am. He's giving them great and deep assurance, hitting on their greatest and deepest longings. The picture is that of an extended family house. And in that day and age, what would happen is a father, a patriarch, would have a house. His sons would get married and they would build homes adjacent to and connecting to their father's house. 
so that over the course of years and generations, an entire compound or massive family complex would develop with courtyards in between and gardens all around it. But that land and those houses were the family's house, the extended family all living together, all experiencing life together. The picture is of that sort of house, except it is God the Father's house. And the emphasis here is not on the grandeur of the house so much as on the space that's available. In my house are many rooms. There's plenty of room, guys. Don't worry. You won't be left out if you want to be in. And you can come and be a part of this household. When you add in Jesus' other words in our passage, that whoever has seen me has seen the Father, that you can come to the Father through me, Jesus, and that I will always be with you and bring you to be with me. Then John 14 is an invitation. It's an invitation to come to God's family, to enter his eternal home. This was incredibly powerful imagery to a first century Jew. Everything you've been longing for in life is going to be found in me eternally. This is incredibly powerful imagery for us too. You know, we're the sort of people who long for community, who long for a place. And it's hard. It's hard to have it. We're transient people. Most of us don't live near extended family, near friends, unless we've been in the same place for decades. We miss out on that sense of extended community. We're looking for a place to call home. It's one of the reasons why many people settle in a town like Vienna, because it has all the semblances of small town, but near a big city where you can actually work. But people want to be in a place where the, the, the center street is cut off so they can have a parade. They want to be in a place where kids are running around and there's bicycles everywhere and shops are open and you see the same people. We want a place to belong. We want a place that feels like home. What we want is heaven. And Jesus is talking about that. The imagery almost reflects the prodigal son returning home. And Jesus is saying the place that we belong is to return home with the Father, to be with him in his home. It's imagery that C.S. Lewis hit, hit on in the final installment of his Chronicles of Narnia series. In the last battle, the last book, upon entering Narnia, which was the new Narnia, which was representative of heaven, a unicorn exclaims, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it until now. Jesus' claim that he is the way and the truth and the life is actually a claim of great hope for us because Jesus is inviting us to his eternal home and family, the one we have been longing for, the one we are made for. Jesus' claim is hard to hear, but it is one filled with assurance and hope, and ultimately it is one that is filled with grace. When Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, what is that in answer to? 
It's an answer to Thomas's question in John 14, 5. Thomas basically says, hey, Jesus, you're going somewhere? Show us the way. And fundamentally, what Thomas is asking for in John 14, 5 is he wants directions. He wants a roadmap. Jesus has said, I am going away. I'm going somewhere. I'm going to be with the Father. But don't worry, I'll come back and bring you to be with me. And Thomas is like, okay, how do we get there? How many miles is it? Give us the directions. And we can relate to Thomas. All of us want directions in life. We want that list, that set of requirements. And any of you who are in school know that ultimately, while one aspect of school is learning, the other aspect is doing what is expected. I learned this the hard way when it came to science fair projects. You see, science fair projects actually have requirements. You're supposed to have this thing called a hypothesis, and then there's supposed to be procedures, and even in the end, conclusions. But when I was in elementary school, I didn't really get that. So in fourth grade, Charles Stinger and I, we we did a science fair project that was robots. We went to the Patrick Henry Library and pulled out the Encyclopedia Britannica, Americanica, Worldview, I can't remember. We copied those and then wrote what they said in there. And then we built a robot. And when I say we built a robot, I mean we went over to Charles's house. I brought my remote-controlled car. We put a plastic trash can on it. Using an erector set, we built arms that went like this, and then we put a little funny head on top. So we had a trash can robot that we could drive around and that the arms would move. Our teacher very generously gave us a C minus. I didn't understand why. This robot was awesome. But it didn't meet any of the requirements of an actual science fair project. There was no hypothesis, no procedure, no observable results, no conclusions. Just a trash can rolling around in the classroom. We want that list of requirements. We want the roadmap. Thomas says, Jesus, show us the way. And we can echo that with Thomas. Jesus, seriously, just tell me what I need to do. Ten things, a hundred things, just tell me what I need to do, okay? And I'll do them. But the gospel is fundamentally not religious requirements. It's a person. Andreas Kostenberger, one of the commentators on the Gospel of John, wrote, In a day when keeping the law and scrupulous observance were considered paramount, Jesus claimed that allegiance to himself was the way. Jesus says, I am the way, the way to the Father. This means Even very, very good, devoutly religious, extremely nice people can't get to the Father on their own. Something is missing. Something is fundamentally flawed in all people. Jesus' statement in John 14, 6 means it's not just the prostitutes and the possessed who need a Savior. It's popes and philanthropists and sweet grandmas who do too. Jesus' statement is that it is by grace and not my goodness. This should be incredibly humbling 
There should be no such thing as a Christian who actually believes this to be true, who is also arrogant with others. You see, most every other religion or worldview fundamentally boils down to a performance. You've got to be good enough to get in. You have to perform well to be affirmed and accepted, which any time there is a set of rules that you and I can accomplish, there's reason for superiority. I'm a better parent. I do better with my money. I keep away from bad stuff more than you do. I am more faithful in my religious observance than you are. I am only going to look down on others if it comes down to my performance and I'm able to accomplish it. But the gospel, the gospel says we need more than wisdom. We need more than a moral path. We are sinful, and we can't get to God on our own, and we need a Savior. If Jesus is the only way, I can never feel superior. Jesus is not just saying, hey guys, this is the way, do this. He's saying, I am the way. Believe me. This is a hard thing to buy into. For some of you, though, it's easy. For some in this room, they've already bought into this whole Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. One of the things we need to be careful of is holding that truth so tightly that we hold that without love for others. Because here's what I've found. I've found that some Christians have a really soft spot for people who don't actually believe this. They have a really hard time believing Jesus could be the only way because they think of family and friends who don't believe it. Jesus can't be the only way. But the reality is you can't actually have it both ways. You end up dismissing Jesus. You see, he cannot be God and Savior and one of many ways. In the end, you're saying the cross is not necessary, that we're not that sinful. There's many ways, and Jesus' cross was a great example, but it didn't do anything. The other side is Christians who hold very tightly to this truth. Jesus is the only way. But for some reason, there's often very little obvious concern for those who don't believe this. If we really believe that Jesus is the only way, does your life, your heart, your passions towards doubters, skeptics, the millions of people who don't buy into this, does it reflect that? It's impossible to buy into gospel truth and be self-absorbed. Rather, it should be like having the cure for cancer in one pill. If you really believe that the pill that you have swallowed protected you from all cancer or got rid of the cancer in your life, what are you going to do with that bottle of pills? You're not going to keep it for yourself. You're going to go and give it to every person you possibly can because you love them. The gospel of grace is good news, but it is good news with implications for believers, for doubters and skeptics. Look, I'm going to admit it takes faith to believe this to be true. 
it's hard to buy into this. If you don't buy into it, please consider Jesus' claim. Consider who said it. Recognize your own cultural assumptions and even be willing to let go of unloving Christians who have wrongly portrayed the person who said this. At the center of Christianity is not just a moral path. It is a person. It is Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, the Savior and God who loves us, who died for us, who wants us to be with him forever, who invites us to believe in him and find the home we belong. You know, if a mom, if a mom called out to her son who was playing in the creek out back, son, come on in for dessert, we'd think it rather odd if the son back there was thinking to himself, who does she think she is claiming I have to go inside to get dessert? Oh, she thinks that I can't have my own dessert out here. I'm just going to show her. I'm going to stay out here and find my own dessert. When an offer of dessert is given to a boy, he's excited. He thinks yippee. He runs into the house shouting, I'm coming. Jesus saying, I am the way and the truth and the life, the way to the Father, is Jesus offering himself and life through himself. It's not a claim of exclusion. It's an offer for an embrace question is, will we exclude ourselves or enter his embrace? Let's pray. God, this is not easy stuff. And in spite of a short dealing with this, we've entered into trying to figure out who you are and what you have said and whether we can believe it. And if it is true, what difference it makes in our life. I pray that you would give us eyes to see, to critique our own assumptions, and to recognize what is true and right, and to respond with humility, with grace, and with love. Amen. the blood.
the blood.